Come now to the reading of God's word from Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll read beginning at the end of chapter 3, verse 26, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 7, but focus especially on verses 4 through 7 of chapter 4. This we'll read in connection with Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Read with me beginning at Galatians 3, verse 26. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the uh, the elements of the world, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Again, we read that in connection with Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of our Christian faith. At this point, it's uh, summarizing what Christians believe about Jesus. As uh, summarizing the Apostles' Creed, It's asked, um, why is it that we call him Jesus? Because he is our only Savior. Why is it that we call him the Christ? Because he is anointed as our prophet, priest, and king. And now it focuses on his identity as the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. So we'll read these two questions, 33 and 34, responsively. It's on page 877 in the back of your um, hymnal, Lord's Day 13. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, when we also are God's children. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God, we, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. And why do you call him our Lord? Because not with gold or silver... But with his precious blood, he has delivered and purchased us, body and soul, from sin and from the tyranny of the devil, to be his very own. Congregation, we uh, come to this question this morning of what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God at a very appropriate time? Weeks leading up to Christmas, um, people in the world all around us are, are thinking about the birth of Christ. 
And yet, this question forces us to ask the question, just who is this Christ that is born? Is he a mere man? Is he divine? What, what do we mean when we call him the Son of God? These are important questions. And Galatians chapter 4 is going to touch on each of these things and, and also the benefits that come to us because God has sent his Son into the world. And so uh, what I want to consider this morning is uh, Jesus' identity as the Son in verse 4, is the, the Son of God, then move to consider um, Jesus' identity also as the son of the woman in in the second part of that verse and how that relates both to his humanity but also to his divinity. Then lastly, um, our identity as sons in the son because of what the son of God has done in being born of a woman. So three points this morning, the son of God, the son of the woman, and sons in the son. As we think about the goal of Christmas, that we would be adopted into God's family through God's son. Have you thought about that before, that the goal of Christmas is our adoption as sons? The glory of God and the adoption of redeemed sinners as beloved sons. That's the goal of of Christmas, according to Galatians 4, that we would be brought into God's family. As Galatians 4 unpacks this for us, it it leads us first to consider Christ, that that unique member of God's family, his only begotten son. Verse 4 of our passage hints at this when it speaks of God sending forth his son. Does that language of, of sending forth not suggest pre-existence. This one who is, who is said to have been sent by God to be born of a woman, therefore existed even before his birth. He was sent in order to be born. Therefore, even before he was born, he already existed. He is, as Lord's Day 13 says, the eternal Son of God. I'm Herman Ritterboss says this word that is is translated for us here, sent forth, comprises two thoughts. Um, First, the going forth of the Son from a place which he was before, namely heaven. And second, this idea of him being sent forth suggests that he is invested with divine authority. It was the Father who sent him. Ritterboss says, by this, we see the profound and glorious significance of Christ coming into the world. He was the Son of the Father who stood by the Father's side already from the beginning. That's what we heard in the call to worship from John chapter 1. He is the Son of the Father who stood by the Father's side already from the beginning. Meaning he was not just sent from uh, Bethlehem to, to the cross. He wasn't just sent from, from the manger to, to the cross as one who had been born. But he was sent already from heaven to earth. We, we sang of it in number 322. He came down to earth from heaven. Who is God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable. And his cradle was a stall with the poor and mean and lowly lived on earth our savior holy he was sent from heaven to earth and so just in these couple words where it speaks of the son being sent forth we we see the pre-existence of christ 
We see the divine authority of Christ. He is coming in the name of the Father, sent by the Father, as we heard last week, anointed by the Holy Spirit and ordained by the Father to this threefold office. And we also see in that language of, of Son the outright divinity of Christ. That he is the Son of God means he is God. And think of those words that we confessed last week from the Nicene Creed. We'll confess them again tonight, that he is the Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, means he is God of God. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, and being of one substance with the Father. The sonship of Christ means the divinity of Christ. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as you. A, a, a human begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind than yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set. To uh, make something is different than to beget something. And Christ is begotten, not made. He is of the same substance as the Father. Christ is divine. Christ is sent by the Father. He is commissioned and ordained by the Father. He is the eternal, natural Son of God who is God himself. So that's the first thing that we see implied by Paul in verse 4 when he speaks of Jesus as the Son. Jesus is the Son of God from eternity, sent forth by the Father from heaven to redeem us. And and yet that's not all that Galatians 4 tells us about Christ. And notice verse 4 also affirms that he is the Son of the woman, which speaks here of, of the human birth of this eternal and divine Son of God. Joseph Piper says, with these simple words, Son of God and Son of the Woman, the Apostle proclaims the glorious mystery of the Incarnation. That as we confess in Nicene Creed, this one who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, this one by whom all things were made, also, as the Creed goes on to say, for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. You see the richness of the Christology of the Nicene Creed. That's why we we confess it throughout Advent because it so wonderfully explains just what is going on in the incarnation. The eternal Son of God takes to himself a true human nature for us men and for our salvation. God sent forth his son born of a woman. God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to take upon himself um, all that belongs to mankind, sin accepted. Meaning that Jesus takes on our human weakness. Meaning that Jesus takes on our human frailty, meaning that Jesus uh, makes himself susceptible as we are to betrayal by those whom he loves. He takes on the possibility of of sickness and even death. Takes on the possibility of of tears and grief as we see at the the, the, the graveside of Lazarus. 
Or as we see him weeping over Jerusalem, saying how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus becomes susceptible to mockery. He becomes like us in all things. So that in the person of Christ are joined the divine and human natures. As the Council of Chalcedon said in, in 451, he is of one substance with the Father as in his deity. He is of one substance with us in his humanity. These two natures, his divine nature on the one hand and his human nature on the other hand, the, the Council of Chalcedon said, are not, not confused or, or changed or divided or separated, but he remains fully God and fully man, which is fully necessary for our salvation, that our Savior be fully God, able to bear the full weight of God's wrath. So we confess in Lord's Days 5 and 6, that he must be fully God if he would bear the full weight of God's wrath, and yet he also must be fully man, able to do it in our place, because a, a human must pay for the sins of mankind. And, and Jesus coming into the world to do just that is the most significant event in human history. That the angels, 1 Peter 1.12 says, longed to look into these prophecies made by the prophets of this one who would come into the world to save us. The angels longed to look into it, that the prophets promised it, that the people of God groaned for it. As we sang, and come thou long expected Jesus, they waited for the coming of this one. I'll sing it again this afternoon, O come, O come, Emmanuel. They groaned and sighed and waited for the coming of the promised one. This is the event, the, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ that, that all of the Old Testament was moving towards. That's why Paul says that this happened when the fullness of time had come. From the very beginning of salvation history, God's people waited for the coming of this one who was promised in, in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. In fact, you, you could say, even already before that, there, there were hints of the incarnation, the very fact that, that man is made in the image of God. Uh, William Hendrickson says, says that in itself is already suggesting that, that God will take on our human likeness, that he will become one like us. But then after that, there's this promise in, in Genesis chapter 3.15, you could trace that promise all throughout Scripture. In Genesis chapter 12, we have this promise of the one who would bring blessing to all the families of the earth, who would remove the curse, who would reverse the curse. We, we sang of it already. He would make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the star of Jacob that Balaam promised, the prophet like Moses or, or the priest who, as we heard last week from 1 Samuel 2, would stand in God's presence forever, interceding for his people. So the people waited. Come thou long expected Jesus. They waited for that desire of every nation, that day spring from on high, that promised rod of Jesse and key of David. The prophet, priest, and king, redeemer, shepherd, friend, all of history was moving toward his coming. The entirety of the Old Testament, from the fall of Adam to the coming of Christ, was a period of waiting, of wondering, 
would this be the one? Would it be Cain, born to Eve in Genesis 4.1? Would it be Noah, several chapters later, the one that they thought would bring rest? Was it Moses? Was it David? Was it David's son, Solomon? You see this afternoon, was it Joash, the, the little baby boy hidden away and then raised up from the, the, the dry ground out of, out of a root to be that branch? Would he be the one? But every one of these figures, though, though each of them pointed forward in, in some measure to what Christ would do, each of them fell short. And so God's people continued waiting. They waited throughout that, that long period of the exile. They waited through that long period after the exile, that period of silence. They waited to hear the announcement of that forerunner that Malachi chapter 4 promised. The forerunner of of God himself who, who would come and say the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, redemptive history has reached full term, it is now ready to give birth to a son. That's the very announcement that Mark chapter 1 begins with. It's the very thing that Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2 understood, that salvation has come, that, that those who had waited for the redemption and consolation of Israel need wait no more. It's the very thing that Paul says. He says the fullness of time had come. With the advent of Christ, redemptive history had come to full term and was ready to give birth to the Messiah, the one who would fulfill all the law and the prophets. In fact, who would be born under the law, as Paul says at the end of verse 4, to redeem those, verse 5, who were under it. Meaning Jesus comes to actively fulfill all the requirements of the law for us so that it might no longer spell our condemnation. But as Paul says just a few verses earlier in Galatians 3, verse 13, he redeems us from the law's curse. In other words, Christ being born under the law means he comes to fulfill it for us. But then to to take the curse that we deserve for failing to fulfill it. This is what God had in mind when he sent his son into the world. His active obedience in fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law from his circumcision on the eighth day to his resisting Satan's temptation in the wilderness to to even his bearing the curse on the cross for sinners like you and me. His passive obedience in submitting to the wrath of God poured out upon him so that we could be justified. And yet more than that, not just so that we could be justified, but as he'll say in verse 5, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. This ultimately was the goal of the Father sending the Son in the fullness of time to be born of a woman, born under the law. The goal was our adoption. He sent his Son that we too might become his sons. J.I. Packer said that this is the highest privilege the gospel offers. He said, I know of no greater definition than what it means to be a Christian than to say that we are those who are children of God. John Murray said this doctrine of adoption is the apex of grace and privilege. 
that we would become children of God. First John chapter 3 says, Behold, what manner of love is this, that we would be called children of God. I think Packer was right. I think John Murray was right. This is the apex of, of grace and privilege. As we said earlier, this is the goal of Christmas. The goal of the incarnation, the goal of the Father sending His Son that we too might become His sons. So look at me next at um, how the Son being sent by the Father means that you and I can also become sons of the Father. Third point, and I, I say sons because every one of us, whether male or female, have the rights and privileges of firstborn sons. Maybe that's even hinted at when he says in Galatians 3.28 that there is no longer male nor female. Every one of us, male or female, naturally are given the rights and the privileges of firstborn sons. God makes us his sons so that even though we are not the eternal, natural son of God, question 33, we are adopted by grace for Christ's sake. And you and I become sons in the Son. I just want to focus in the rest of the time that we have on the, the nature of this privilege in verses 5 through 7. We can see um, several things that our adoption by faith wrought union with Christ grants us. Uh, these are some of the same privileges that the Westminster Confession mentions in chapter 12. I would uh, commend that to you. It's on uh, page 927 in the back of your hymnals if you want to look at it or read it later this afternoon. Many of those same privileges of adoption are in view here. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul speaks of the, of the privilege of receiving the spirit of adoption. Verse 6, that the spirit of his son being sent forth into our hearts. Meaning by virtue of Christ being born under the law for us and taking the curse on our behalf, we are brought into a, an intimate family relationship with the Father and, and we are given the spirit to assure us of that kinship. The Spirit of God is, is sent forth into our hearts to assure us of the new relation that we now sustain to our Heavenly Father. Ritterboss says the spirit of adoption designates the means through which believers become conscious of their kinship. We are justified by grace through Christ, adopted into God's family, and the first thing He does for us is give us His Spirit to assure us of that adoption. And then to give us access to his throne of grace with boldness so that we might pray to him as father. Even as we've exercised that privilege this morning, coming before our father in heaven, bringing all of our needs before the one who we know will hear us because he's a good father. Perhaps not all of you um, listening this morning or gathered here this morning have had good fathers, fathers who listen to you, Fathers who care for you. But as Paul paints this picture for us of the privileges of adoption through Christ, we, we must not read it through the lens of the failures of our earthly parents. My professor, Dr. Strange, used to say that, that God is everything an earthly father should be and nothing that an earthly father should not be. And so if your father has 
failed to listen to you, failed to care for you, failed to love you. That is not the case with our Heavenly Father, but He inclines His ear toward His children. Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 7 tell us how He loves to hear and answer our prayers. Because He's a good Father, sometimes He even answers those prayers in ways that are different than what we would wish. But as any good parent knows what is best for their children, our Heavenly Father knows what is best for His children. So He delights in inclining His ear toward us to hear our prayers. He delights in giving us good gifts. It's one of the the privileges of our adoption is that we are given access to the throne of grace with boldness as His children. And then it says that we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. And if you you do look at the the Westminster Confession, the way that it lists all of these privileges of adoption, it actually lists this as as a separate privilege from being enabled to come before the throne of grace with boldness. And and it lists this separately, meaning that that we are not only given access to the throne of grace with boldness in prayer, but, but we are enabled to cry out to him, Abba, Father. Which I think not only suggests something about the prayer life of the child of God, the fact that we're able to pray, but I think this suggests particularly something about the prayer life of the child of God in distress. If you, you search the New Testament, there's only two other places where we see this cry, Abba, the Aramaic term for father. And both of them are the context of great suffering. Paul will speak of this in Romans chapter 8, that great passage where he speaks of how we we suffer together with Christ and cry out to him by the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. And then the one other place where we see this, this term is from Jesus himself in Mark chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. One commentator, Todd Wilson, says, the only other person who cries this way, Abba, Father, is Jesus. This is the cry that he uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane. His final hour had come. He was was staring death in the face. No doubt he he was coming to terms with the suffering he was about to endure on the cross. His soul was in utter anguish. And at precisely that moment, he voiced this cry, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This cry, Abba, Father, is the son's cry of distress to his loving heavenly father. It is his way of addressing his father in his time of greatest need. Yes, it's a cry of intimacy and dependence, but even more fundamentally, it's a cry. It's a response to pain. Something one utters in the face of of suffering or in the midst of hardship. He says, because God sends the Spirit of Christ into the hearts of, of every one of his adopted children, we learn to cry this same cry when we are in our time of need. Adopted sons and daughters cry out to their heavenly father in the same way that God's one and only son did. In fact, the cry of God's adopted child is the cry of the son himself uttering his cry to God in them and for them by his spirit. That's that's what Paul says in Galatians 4. He sends the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out, 
The subject is the son crying out, Abba, Father, in and through us. God's adopted children have a very distinctive cry, a very distinctive way of responding to life's challenges. And the distinctive thing is is not that God's children have fewer challenges. It's not that, that we don't grieve or experience disappointment. But the distinctive thing about God's children is this. When we cry, we make a different sound than those who are not God's children. The kind of cry that we we heard in the book of Job that uh, was directed not just to those around him, but to God himself. and, And that longed all throughout the book for a sense of his loving presence. The spirit of Christ, the greater Job in us, allows us to cry out to God in that same way in the midst of our trials and to cry to him as father. And Galatians 4 makes the point that as we turn to him in the midst of our suffering, that that is actually further confirmation of his work in us. As we cry out to God in the midst of the trials of this life and and say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, may the name of the Lord be praised. With Job in, in Job 12, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I know that my Redeemer lives, even when when everything else seems unsure, this I know, that my Redeemer lives, and and I will one day stand before him face to face. As as the Spirit of God works that same uh, sort of response to life's trials in you, that is evidence of the work of the Spirit of Christ in you. It is evidence of, of the presence of the Spirit of God's Son, who places his name upon us, that we might become sons in the Son, adopted through him, called Christians, because Christ is our elder brother, and we are baptized into his name. Westminster Confession says we, we receive a new name, an adoption. For his sake, that is Christ's sake, we are pitied, protected, and provided for as children of the Heavenly Father. Packer said there is no distinction of affection in the divine family, but we are pitied, protected, and provided for just as Christ was in his sojourn on earth. We are not pitied, protected, and provided for in the way that slaves were, verse 7, but as children who are never cast off, yet sealed until the day of redemption when we will inherit the promises as heirs, verse 7, of everlasting life. Heirs, Galatians 3.29, of all the promises that were made by God to Abram all the way back in Genesis. Boys and girls, you remember those three things that God promised Abram? He he promised him that he would dwell in in a, a promised land, that he would have many descendants, and through him would come this blessing to all the families of, of the earth. And uh, Paul is saying we become heirs of those same promises. We become heirs of the promise that we will dwell in a heavenly promised land with God's blessing upon us for all eternity. This is what Paul is saying we're made heirs of through Christ. 
That Christ, the true seed of Abraham, inherits these promises, but he makes them possible also for us by entering into this world, by taking on our flesh, by living the life that neither you nor I could, but then dying the death that we deserve and being raised up, even ascending to the right hand of the Father. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says, in his resurrection and ascension, he was declared to be the Son of God in power so that we too might become children of God. Of God. These are the blessings that are given us for Christ's sake. The Son of God who becomes the Son of the woman for us so that we could become sons in the Son. Which lastly has some implications for the way that we live. Uh, question 34 in Lord's Day 13 says that we also call Christ who is our brother Lord because he has redeemed us in, in such a way, because he has purchased us, body and soul, from sin and the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. This language of purchasing or um, um, redemption, we see also in Galatians 4, it says in verse 5, that he has redeemed us who were under the law. He has purchased us by his blood as the innocent son of God and son of the woman who died in our place. So that now we, we belong to him. And because we belong to him, purchased by his blood, given his name, we must live in a way that is consistent with our new family identity. Paul says we are no longer slaves, but sons. And so we must live like it. Seeking to live like our elder brother and honor our heavenly father, not taking for granted the great sacrifice that is the incarnation, but living in gratitude to our elder brother and heavenly father who have redeemed us from the curse of the law and made us sons. And so are you living in a way that is in accord with your new identity as a child of God? Are you turning to the Lord and crying out to him, Abba, Father, when you find yourself in distress? Or does the sound that you make when you face the trials of this life sound all too much like the world around us? Are you coming to him boldly before his throne of grace in prayer, which is the chief part of our gratitude? Are you understanding that, that because you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, you are not your own and therefore must glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6, putting to death the, the sensual appetites and lusts of the flesh that are, are not consistent with our new family likeness? In short, are you offering yourself as a living sacrifice to your Lord, Master, and Elder Brother who from heaven came and sought you to make you a child of God. That, beloved, is the, the spirit of Christmas, a spirit of gratitude that is wrought by the spirit of Christ in us, the spirit of adoption that makes us live in accord with our new family likeness. May God give each one of us grace to do that, to then repent insofar as we are not, and to find grace and mercy in the person of his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all of the blessings that are ours through Christ. The blessings and privileges of adoption. Because you sent your son to be born of a woman. Make us thankful for that this Advent season. And make us, Lord, show our gratitude by living consistently out of our new family identity. 
We pray that you would make us um, strive to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect and to be conformed to the image of our elder brother. We pray that you would convict us of the ways that we are not doing this. And Father, we pray that if there be any here who are outside of the Son altogether, you would help them to see that we must receive your Son by faith and repentance to be brought into your family by grace. We must repent of our sins and look to him in true faith as the Son of God, the only eternal, natural Son of God, who is sent forth according to your eternal plan and the covenant of redemption to redeem us by becoming a curse for us, to redeem us from the curse of the law and make us children. Give everyone that is gathered here today grace by your Holy Spirit to believe that and to be brought into your family by grace. We pray that you would bless the word that has been preached to that end for Jesus' sake. Amen.